This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. We all think we know what the COVID pandemic was like at various times, terrifying, boring, frustrating, and if you're working in the NHS, overwhelming. But throughout that time, I felt there was a group of people whose feelings and experiences were pretty much ignored. They didn't have lobbyists to advocate for them. They weren't keeping the economy going, or at least not in ways we normally think of. They were sent home from school one day in March, and most of them never returned until the following September. Then it was in and out of school as classmates caught COVID, another lockdown in January, and the same thing all over again. So it's great to have Lauren Andres on the bunker. She's a professor at the Bartlett School of Planning at University College London and has studied how children dealt with the pandemic and how it changed the way they lived. Welcome to the bunker, Lauren. Thank you very much, Rose. We tend to think that we were all in it together, but that wasn't the case at all, really. It was a very different experience being 10 years old in a little village and able to go outside and perhaps have a garden and being 10 years old in a tower block, wasn't it? What was it like for children who perhaps were living in very small flats and definitely didn't have a garden? You're absolutely right. The conditions for children and young people during the pandemic were for most of them awful. And really something to start with is really to say that their needs were ignored. First of all, I need to come back to what you just said, the home conditions. And home was key here because many children were living in very small spaces. They had no garden. They were sharing their bedrooms. And suddenly they were asked to do everything from home. The other thing also we need to bear in mind is the social economic conditions of the households. Again, some parents were already under a lot of pressure, social economically speaking. They were not able to support further the children. They were not able to support them as well with their learning. So huge discrepancies with regard to how some children and young people were impacted during the pandemic. The other thing as well to bear in mind is here is age. Depending on how old were those children and young people, they were at different stages in their educational journey. Some of them were very little. They were just starting to talk to learn how to read. Others were going through key journey, key steps in their, in their journey, exams, for example. And the key thing is there was an expectation that they would be able to shift completely online in terms of learning online, playing online, growing online. And we need to remember the digital divide here. Many children, many young people at the start of the pandemic and along the pandemic didn't really have access to a phone, to a computer. Sometimes they were sharing it with their brothers or sisters. And also many of them didn't really have the spaces, as I said before, to learn, to play and really to grow up. And the final thing as well is they were put back in a sort of cube in the home. They had really no access to external support. And here we really, really need to understand how important 
other external organizations have been during the pandemic, social services, schools, faith groups, friends, and all those organizations really helped some children really to cope, to move forward. But also we need to recognize that many of them suffered greatly during the pandemic. And going back to my point at the start, they were just ignored. They were not the priority. Yes, it was a frightening feeling as a parent because you realized that suddenly it was all on you, that there was nobody else who was going to help you, who could help you with your child, and you had to be absolutely everything to them. And I remember feeling that very powerfully. And of course, you know, at the time, it, you didn't feel you could complain much because other people were having it so much worse, but it was a, a terrible, awesome responsibility to, to have. During the first lockdown, playgrounds were shut. What kind of impact did that have generally? I mean, I can speak personally in saying that it was a nightmare but because all you could do was go for walks. But what do we know about what the, the impact was across society? So the impact was really bad. And I can only share just first of all this, this feeling of having to go either for walk or for biking. And after, after six months, they just hated it. Yeah. Um, but they were lucky enough to be able to do it. And it really goes back to what I was saying earlier, really the home conditions, parents able to do this with them. And really in terms of playground, there's been a shift from the physical playground to the online playground. So a lot of the play, the socialization happened online. And this raises a lot of issues with regard, again, to the digital divide. But the other thing as well is it did increase, as you said, the necessity for parents to look after the children and to play with them. And this, again, goes back to how available were they? Were they in jobs where they could do this? And this leads to, again, social economic inequalities with some parents not being able to support their children during the pandemic because they were key workers, because they had to go and work. So this raises a lot of issues. The other thing which is really important is some play workers. So those workers in the play sector did loads to try to shift the actions of really organizing physical face-to-face -face sessions to online sessions. This creatives of innovative play groups, but those initiatives were quite small. Overall, really, there was no playground some sort of alternative playground emerge in sort of green spaces, in forest. But overall, we need also to remember, especially here for young people, for teenagers, there was quite a lot of policing against young people outside. And they were trying really to gather in a way or another, but they were seen as really just spreading the virus. So this was a fundamental issue from very early young children to teenagers who had no space where they could just socialize, really have some leisure, which is crucial in their overall well-being. And in relation also to this, it's the impact in terms of just the decrease of physical exercise, the lack of exercise sitting all day, which has longer in-term impact on the health. Yeah, of course, the key workers did, their children did have the right to go to school, though of course they didn't always want to send them. And I do remember feeling a completely unreasonable feeling of envy <laughs> and slight resentment towards those parents who were able to work and do their jobs, which of course were necessary jobs, unlike mine, which I suppose was not, but it was very much to me, and could send their kids to school. And you say in the report that playing is a right, but we have lots of rights many of which were suspended during the pandemic. 
how can you ensure that play is a right in an atmosphere of fear, where, as you say, people are worried about the children passing on the virus and spreading it, and when laws are passed very quickly without parliamentary scrutiny, as happened with all the emergency legislation that went through? How can you maintain that, that idea that play is a right in those circumstances? I mean, it's a really important point, and it is also very problematic indeed. It is a right if we go back to, I mean, the United Nations and what they say about really children and young people. I think here we need to remember and we need to go back to what were the priorities. Regulations were very quickly adapted, really to save local businesses, to push for economic recovery. We need to remember that pubs were reopened before playgrounds. And here I think there's a key issue is to what are we giving priority? And there's been a lot of thinking on how to adapt spaces and there's been no thinking about how to adapt playground. And I think that's really the point that we're making when we're saying that playing is a right, because we need to remember that play, especially for children in a young age, is really part of the developmental skills. It is part of the education, is how they learn to socialize, how they learn to be adults. And really in relation to this, we need also to remember that the play sector, the support to the play sector in terms of any kind of funding available was more or less nil. There was nothing done in that regard, which again recognizes that play wasn't important, but also that children and young people, the only thing that was recognized is the fact that they could spread the virus, but the fact that they couldn't play, it wasn't a policy matter. It was something parents had to deal with. And those kids that did have access to devices obviously spent more time on them, understandably. What did they watch and do? So there's a lot of things that they did with screens. I think we need to see it in different ways. So we had phones, we had computers, and the way they used their devices was, first of all, of of course, to communicate. It was a way for them to keep in touch with their friends. It was also a way to learn, and here really to learn beyond the school learning. What we we saw in England, but also in other in other countries, is how young people embrace technologies really to gain knowledge about the virus, about what they could do, about any kind in a way of hope with regard to what could happen afterwards. The device, any kind of devices, was really used to keep them busy. It was really feeling time. But the issue is the more we talk with them and the more we realize that there was an issue of getting bored, the screen was enough. The screen wasn't replacing the fact of being able to see friends, being able to see family. And it also led to other issues. I mean, concentration for sure. And the other thing which is really important to acknowledge is online abuse, violence that rise because really of phone and, of course, the increase really of online gaming and all the consequences that it can have. And finally, as well, what we saw when we spoke with some of young people is how the phone was also a way to go around the rules, to find ways just to meet secretly in someone else's, just to be able just to live just for a little bit and just be able to enjoy their life. many kids afraid of catching COVID? I mean, psychologically, there was an awful lot of pressure. Obviously, it was a, you know, there was the law, but it was also social pressure to stay within the rules. And, you know, you saw kids occasionally meeting up in small groups in parks and things, and they would be given terrible side eye by, uh, and, and even uh, admonished uh, sometimes by adults for doing that. 
But what effect did it have psychologically on, because some, of course, very much took the rules to heart and were very afraid of breaking them to the extent that I knew kids who did not even want to leave the house because of what they had been told about COVID. Absolutely. So, And we saw this with children, young people who had vulnerable members in the family. And here they felt really under pressure because they felt that there were virus transmitters. They felt that they couldn't see their friend because they could put their parents, their grandparents at risk. So it was huge pressures really put under them. But really beyond this, I think it's the mental health issues that start to just appear and appear during the pandemic. We spoke with many of them and they were saying probably something they missed the most was just a hug a hug, the ability really to be able to touch someone. And again, even within individual households, they were not hugging their parents because they didn't want them to catch the virus, especially if them they were making the effort of going outside to get food. They were protecting someone in the household. In other words, they are not hugging. You also have the case where, for example, one of the parents was working, for example, for the NHS. Because of this, the person felt that there was more risk for the family. So again, the mom wasn't hugging her kid for a very long period of time. And this has, I mean, detrimental consequences for the children along with the fact that, of course, they felt that they were being put in prison. And I think that's the word that was used quite a lot by some of the young people we talked to. And really this fear and this lack and this loss of self-confidence that arise of not being able to socialize, but also after just to wear a mask all the time. And all those really have sort of longer term impact for them. What we have started discussing and what some organization really told us when we were interviewing them is how there's a real fear of going out now spreading for some more vulnerable young people. And going out is really going out of their own neighborhood where there's some very clear and visible boundaries that are created. And this is really impacting the lives of some young people because it means that they're not looking for jobs, they're not looking for training. And this has very sort of a set of very, very important consequences for their lives. And of course, when they went back to school in September, we had another wave of COVID and increasingly kids caught it in schools and were in self-isolation either because they had COVID or because someone in their class had COVID. And I knew of kids who, if they were put into self-isolation, their parents were extraordinarily strict to my mind about it. And they didn't, you know, they put them in a room and they did not let them leave. Was this something that happened quite a lot to your knowledge because it is you know two weeks in a room as it was at that time and then it went down to 10 days later two weeks in a room is a terrifying prospect for anyone but I would imagine especially for a child how did they deal with that kind of thing so this is something which didn't came through a lot as yet in our interviews on the contrary really to young people saying that they did it by themselves on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, so all the young people we talked to overall for their parents were pretty supportive and it was more by themselves. They, w- they had the willingness to protect them rather than being really put on the side by the family. But I can just only imagine by extrapolating from what we've heard from others, how traumatic 
the fact of being completely isolated in prison within your own house could have been really for those children. And I think the key word that is coming out of this is the word trauma, because from young people and from organizations that have been working with young people during and after the pandemic, this work of trauma keeps going back. The pandemic and the way they live the pandemic being a trauma and how now to deal with the legacy of this trauma. You also did quite a bit of work in other countries as well, so a comparative study. And of course, it was very different in other countries. I mean, in Spain, there was a period when kids weren't allowed out of houses at all. Everybody, there was just a complete total lockdown, stricter than, than ours. Which other countries did you look at and what did you find there? So in this project, and maybe just to restate it, so we are funded by both the ESRC, the NRF in South Africa and FABESPA in Brazil, but we did also a mapping looking globally. And what we saw across the board is really that all in all countries, children were really not considered as a priority. So in that kind of sense, in a way, things were pretty similar from one country to another. What was very different in the approach to who went beyond their own duties to help and support children and young people. So here, if we're looking, for example, in the UK, what was amazing and what is really coming through very strongly from our interviews is the role of schools as hubs. And when I mean school, it's school, but also teachers. What was really exceptional uh, in the UK, and we saw this, for example, in Spain or in France, is how teachers just decided to print materials to drive and really to drop material to the most vulnerable kids. So this was what was happening, for example, here. What also happened in other countries is how charities, faith groups got together. Again, this is quite similar to, to the UK per se, but it's really how something which was really put in place by national regulations, there was a lot of very local interpretations on how support could be provided and by whom. And what we saw is there was very different ways of trying to tackle education. And when you're looking at what happened, for example, in South Africa, they decided that due to the digital divide, they couldn't just send back the kids at school. So they were sending them for a week. The week after, they were supposed to be at home and they were supposed to learn remotely. What happened effectively is they were learning when they were at school and then they had a week of holiday in a way. So there was a real loss of learning, which was dramatic. And we had very, very similar example in Brazil, where because the shift to online learning wasn't possible, the most vulnerable children and young, and young people just lost so much in their education. How do young people think about the pandemic now? I mean, it's it's three and a half years since it all started. And you spoke about trauma and of course, trauma is, has long-term effects. Is it something that they actively avoid, for example, talking about or thinking about? How have they tried to process the experience in their minds? So I think the starting point is really this word trauma. So as part of this project with colleagues from the University of Birmingham, we are working with very vulnerable children and young people in the West Midlands. And many of them, they don't want to talk about the pandemic. And during the pandemic, they didn't want to talk about it. So it's really more working with them and trying to understand how they experience 
other aspects of the pandemic, other forms of socialization, of play of happiness in a way that we're able to discuss the pandemic. But really, there's this thing of trauma, not thinking of it and trying to move on, despite the fact that they know they lost a lot. The other thing which is also really crucial in what we're hearing is how young people are really angry. There's this anger in the sense that they feel that they've been ignored. Nobody who, cared. Who are they angry with? Government, mm-hmm. the sort of the national in a way decision makers, uh, sort of global restrictions as a whole, where they feel that there was no recognition of what children and young people needed. Some points were made sometimes that they felt that because they didn't have the right to vote, they were not considered as a priority by national governments. And as a result, really, what they want, and this is, again, something we feel with the young people we, we're talking to, is through those kind of projects, they're having their voices heard and they're really happy to be able to communicate and they want really to be involved in any kind of decisions that may inform any kind of preparedness to further crisis, pandemic or others, because they don't want to be in a situation again where they just put on the side, just considered as we don't really care about that you just continue your life and we're just going to focus on others. So there was at the same time a feeling, you know, a willingness for great self-sacrifice on the part of these kids and then a feeling that that sacrifice had not been acknowledged. Absolutely. And this is really coming from the fact that when we're looking in the UK and elsewhere, there's a rise of unemployment amongst young people. Many of them as well suffered from a health perspective, not only in terms of mental health, but also in terms of nutrition. So here there's a lot of organization like, for example, Bite Back 2030. They've done a lot of work really to raise the alarm on how some young people, when they were learning online, they were targeted by some key companies selling really unhealthy food. So there's been a sort of snowballing of consequences on, on their life, which they feel that this is not normal. This shouldn't essentially happen again. And this is really important as much as we can on our side to be able to listen, to be able to analyze this and to try to work and co-design really recommendation with them in the future. A word I kept hearing during the pandemic when talking about young people, when politicians were talking especially, was resilient. And I often thought that was some really terrible kind of projection. We want you to be resilient. You must be resilient. <laughs> be resilient for us. And and as you say, with so little sense of what they had experienced being being taken on board. If you had to think about one, perhaps one thing that the government could have done that they didn't do at the time, let's you know pass over the. Um, limited scale of the catch-up scheme for education, for example. But one thing that they could have done at the time and they didn't, what would it be? I would say the key thing was really to understand the impact of the virus beyond the impact of getting infected and spreading the virus. I think it was the recognition of the wider and longer mental health issues that were involved with the fact that you were effectively characterizing one part of the of the population as non-important. And this has and will have very key long-term consequences. And the key thing is here we are seeing with now how young people have longer term consequences with the GCAC, with the A-levels, that this clearly a gap 
in learning. There's been key learning gaps that have been accumulated as a result of the pandemic on how they've been able really to learn during the pandemic. And again, when we're thinking and when we're looking at what is done, very little has been really little thought of being given on the sort of the long term impact of the pandemic here. And God forbid this should happen again. And yet there is a strong possibility that it will. And we don't know when and we don't know how and we don't know what kind of virus it would be and how it would be spread. But there is a strong chance that there will be another pandemic at some time. Do you think next time it will be any better? Have we learned anything? If we only talking about children and young people, I would say no. And I think for me, this is scary as a mom. I think we are really now dealing with what we could call a sort of COVID loss generation. So this is really catastrophic in the fact that we've just moved on to recovery, to normality. And we've been essentially discussing here children and young people. But when we're looking at any other kind of adaptations that occurred during the pandemic, typically in relation to planning, to how we adapted streets, for example. Again, we just moved on. We just forgot about it. And we're just hoping that it's not going to happen again. But I think one of the lessons from the past pandemic was that we were not prepared. And there's very little effort as it stands in terms of really reflecting and trying to be better prepared for the next one. It is so awful to think about it happening again that you can understand why that happens and yet as you say it's it doesn't bode very well lauren thanks so much for joining us thank you very much and if you enjoyed the bunker do consider backing us on patreon from just three pounds a month search patreon bunker podcast i'm ros taylor and thanks for listening Bunker Daily was written and presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was Chris Jones and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.